This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Optimism of some small business owners surged after President Donald Trump was elected. That comes from a survey of National Federation of Independent Business Members. We're bringing you the stories of Coloradans who stand to lose or gain a lot with President Trump in office. Today, we meet a business owner who's hopeful about the new administration. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis has the story. Roger Hayes describes himself this way. I end up being the boring guy at the party. Here's his thinking. People will rant about the president and say he's doing this or this law is going to be it. And I'd be like, no, no, you got to read the law. Well, I don't want to read the law. I've read the stupid law. You need a life. I'm that guy. Hayes reads laws because it's his job. He owns Premier Employer Services in Inglewood. Companies come to him to help manage payroll, human resource needs, benefits administration. And so health insurance, life insurance, 401ks workers' compensation, and then payroll taxes. So we take care of all that, what we call backhouse stuff. It's not what you start your business to do. Hayes says business owners don't go into being an employer to do paperwork or to keep up with state and federal regulations. So he makes sure his clients are in compliance. He says his experience as a lobbyist means he likes to stay involved in business politics. Sometimes I probably need to focus more on this place and stop going up to the Capitol. Hayes sees himself as somewhat of an expert on things like the Affordable Care Act, which is partly why he says he's a Trump supporter. We've had a pretty rough run the last eight years. I think that the business economy will get better under him. He says the Obama administration made things hard on small businesses like his. There were times where you felt as if every time you turned around, they were coming after businesses and not in a way to help them or educate them or make things better, but to just crush them under a huge rock. That rock, Hayes says, are the regulations from former President Barack Obama. He published more than 500 regulations considered economically significant. That's according to the George Washington University. Economically significant regulations are seen as likely to have a negative effect on the economy. The National Small Business Association found that nearly 60 percent of small business owners find federal regulation versus local and state the most burdensome. Hayes felt that burden when he started his own company. If you would have done me a huge favor and told me in June of 2008, in just a few months, the economy is going to tank and we're going to have a president in office that's not quite as pro-business, I would have not done what I did. What he did was start his own business the same year Obama took office and the same year the Great Recession hit. The morale of business owners plummeted with the recession. That's according to the National Federation of Independent Business, which surveyed its members. Hayes says it was tough to find clients for his new company. Everyone we were going to talk to was laying people off. They were downsizing. They were going out of business. Companies I'd known for 10, 12 years didn't exist anymore, so they couldn't become customers of ours. Hayes says the next few years were tough. He spent a year working a second job. Get up in the morning, take a quick shower, about 6 a.m., grab my daughter, run her to school, and then come back here to try to build this business. And then I work from about 4.30 at Home Depot to midnight. Over the next eight years, reforms like the Affordable Care Act were implemented. And he says small business owners he worked with were fearful. In the very beginning, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of fear. 
a lot of panic in the business community because they thought, okay, this is the end of us. This thing's going to put us out of business. The Kaiser Family Foundation says the ACA has had little effect on employer plans. Premiums have gone up on individual plans, but less than 10 percent get health coverage that way. He says he's thankful a lot of the fear from the business community didn't come true, but he sees the same fears again with the new administration. There's a lot of people running around screaming, the sky is falling and, you know, doom, doom, doom. Ten years from now, we're going to look back and go, well, we, we survived, didn't we? We got through that. It wasn't so bad. It was the same thing with the ACA. A recent Gallup poll says under the ACA, the number of people without health insurance is nearly the lowest on record. Hayes thinks that's one of the great things about the ACA. But he's seen signs it keeps businesses from growing as they try to avoid the threshold that requires them to provide health insurance. We had business owners say, I'm not doing this. No way. I'm going to lay these five people off. I'm really sorry, but that's just I'm not going to pay the extra money and like a staff. With Obamacare, if your business has more than 50 employees, you're required to offer health insurance. Hayes says employers he's worked with are still avoiding that threshold today. Whereas before that, they were buying new franchises or they were opening up a satellite store in another state or another part of Denver. They said, no, I'm just not going to do it. Despite the Affordable Care Act and other business regulations, job growth was steady under Obama, and 15 million jobs have been added since the bottom of the recession. Hayes acknowledges that things are much better, but he argues that number doesn't reflect the quality of those jobs. He says Obamacare's requirements for employers to provide health insurance with 50 full-time employees keeps more people part-time. Republicans plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. A version passed the House earlier this year, and now Senate Republicans have revealed their own proposal. Hayes says he prefers the House plan because it has earlier deadlines for things like reversing Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. But Hayes sees both as an improvement, and he likes that the Republican plans won't tax companies and individuals who don't have health insurance, like Obamacare does. I'm a big believer in if you don't want to do something— And it doesn't really necessarily negatively affect people around you. You have every right not to do that. Hayes thinks those lifted regulations will help business grow. That's why he voted for President Donald Trump. He says he sees him as a business guy, someone who will look out for the people Hayes works for. And promises of less government regulation from Trump has Hayes and his small business employees hopeful. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. We're going to hear more now about what small businesses in Colorado want to see from the Trump administration on health care and other issues. Throughout the year, CPR News is bringing you stories of Coloradans who stand to lose or gain a lot under the new administration. Tony Galliardi is the Colorado director of the National Federation of Independent Business, or NFIB. A quick note, we spoke with him last week. That was after the release of the Senate bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but before before the release of yesterday's report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. That report said the Senate bill would raise the number of people who don't have health insurance by $22 million and lower the federal deficit by $321 billion. Galliardi told me small businesses are confident the Trump administration will eliminate Obama-era regulations that hurt small businesses. A lot of small businesses have been faced with having to actually hire outside consultants to see if one regulation or another actually applies to them. So it's a lot of red tape. A lot of red tape. During the Obama administration, in our surveys to our membership, which we've done every month for over 35 years, we started to see the optimism just falter, uh, just 
flounder, for lack of a better term. Now and then we'd see an uptick. Things appeared to be picking up. But many of my members, we were waiting for the other shoe to drop. What was going to drop today? Let's talk about health care specifically. You had concerns about Obamacare when it passed. What were they? The key word is uncertainty. The Affordable Care Act created enormous uncertainty on Main Street. What was it going to be like? What was it going to cover? What was it not going to cover? One of your key concerns in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was the requirement that businesses with 50 or more full-time equivalents were considered large businesses and therefore required to offer employee health coverage or pay a penalty. Is that right? I started hearing almost immediately from members on that threshold saying, we are not going to expand. We can't afford to expand. And what you argue is that businesses, small businesses, held back on expanding because they didn't want to go over this 50 rule. It was a definite consideration, not the only one, but it was definitely a consideration. One thing your group did support was the exchange, something small business owners wanted so that employees had the option to buy insurance on the exchange and possibly be eligible for subsidies. But I understand you consider that a failure. Oh, sure. Look at the number of carriers actually offering plans in the small group market. My members voted by 64% to support Colorado establishing a state-specific health exchange rather than defer to the federal model. And that was an option that states had. You had the option. One, it was one or the other. With the idea that it would create more choice, a better competitive market, but website was horrible. If you think uh, the federal exchange had problems, you know, Colorado couldn't compare to that. But tons of mismanagement, broken promises. Carriers were very leery to come into the exchange while we did start out with more choices. Uh, But slowly now on the small group side, I don't think there's more than one or two actually actively, and I stress actively marketing plans to small business owners. Can you point to anything that's been helpful uh, to small businesses that came out of Obamacare? Um, The ability for employees to be able to go into a marketplace and obtain insurance, the subsidies if they qualified, those were actually good things. It was an encouragement to get coverage. Nobody was more aware of the issues we were having in the healthcare arena or obtaining coverage than small businesses were. We really expected this to create competition, and it didn't. The Republican House passed the American Health Care Act, and I understand your group supported it. The Senate bill makes some changes to it. How do you view those changes and how they might affect small businesses? With the changes, 140 pages, repealing 11 taxes, such as uh, the individual mandate penalty, things that were of interest to us. What we're still waiting to see is how is this going to be implemented? The devil is still in the details. 
I want to say that your group represents under 2% of small businesses in Colorado. So we aren't speaking for all small business That's owners. That's right. And some disagree with us. I could not sit here and say, hey, we, you know, everybody agrees with us within my membership. Some people who really believed in, in the Affordable Care Act. I have some who really believed in it and now agree with us that we need to dismantle it and start over. Job growth in Colorado is among the fastest in the nation. Most of those jobs are small business. So I wonder if the Obama administration was bad for small business uh, in the ways that we've talked about. Why are these businesses growing? That is a it's so broad, it's very hard to zero in on. In our membership, I met a lot of people, especially after 2008 when we had the financial collapse. I saw several businesses started, individuals who were at, unfortunately suffered a reduction in workforce at their place of employment. Some were fortunate enough to receive severance payments in that, actually went out and started their own businesses. They seized the opportunity of a bad situation. We see now, after the Trump election, Small business optimism on Main Street exploded upwards. Up until that time, even though NFIB, through our research, we'd see upticks in the optimism index or on a monthly basis when we'd survey a random sample of our our membership, we'd ask questions like, do you within the next month or how long before you expect to expand? Are you going to increase inventory? Do you expect sales to increase or decrease? Do you intend to increase your labor force or decrease it? We'd see upticks now and then, but we were always at pre-recession levels. So you're saying that optimism breeds new jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I talk to members now who are very optimistic. They are looking at reinvestment back into the business, expansion. And when you have reinvestment and expansion, you have new jobs. And yet we'll have to see how that pans out. We we will have to see. You know, it's like the health care debate. You know, we didn't just get in this problem with health care. This had been, NFIB has been on the front line of health care reform for almost 30 years now, along with taxes and regulations. Other than job growth, what do you hope to see for businesses you represent under the Trump administration? Um, Less government intrusion. NFIB's core philosophy is everyone has the right to own, operate, and grow their business with as little government interference as possible. Government does not know best how to run a business. Let small businesses do what they do best, and that's create growth and create jobs. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Tony Galliardi heads up the National Federation of Independent Business in Colorado. He talked with us about how the election of President Donald Trump has NFIB members hopeful for more pro-business policies and less regulation. This conversation is part of an ongoing project to bring you stories from Coloradans about how the Trump administration affects them. You can hear more voices at CPRnews.org, and you can join that discussion on the Facebook page for CPR News.
As we mentioned, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said yesterday the Senate health care bill would raise the number of people who don't have health insurance by $22 million and lower the federal deficit by $321 billion. We'll bring you more perspective on efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act as we continue to cover the issue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Here's a sound that no one in Colorado, with the possible exception of insurance adjusters, wants to hear. The hailstorm that struck Metro Denver last month was the most expensive natural disaster in state history, with more than a billion dollars in losses. It raises the proverbial question, is climate change making Colorado's weather more intense? Here to discuss that and other climate change topics in the news are Eve Hinckley, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at CU Boulder, and Alan Townsend, who's an ecologist at CU. They spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Welcome to both of you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Besides the hailstorm here, uh, last week we saw record-setting temperatures across the country, including, as I think you probably know, Phoenix, where it hit almost 120 degrees, so hot that flights there had to be grounded because the heat thins the air to a point where it's just too hard for planes to lift off. Uh, Alan Townsend, help us understand, as lay people, what any one weather event can tell us about climate change in general, or if if you just can't make that kind of connection specifically? Well, it's still very difficult to attribute any one weather event to climate change. Um, I think what's key to keep in mind around this is that, first of all, any given weather event is now happening and forming in, in a changed world. It's happening in a system where we've changed it. And what we can say, and say with increasing certainty with with each passing year lately, is that the influence of us, of our own activities, of what we're doing around the planet on these kinds of extreme weather events, um, it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're playing a significant role. So you can't necessarily take, for example, this one heat wave as extreme as it's been, and, and, you know, not only here, I mean, we're seeing in the Middle East, we're seeing in North Africa, we've seen things in Asia, there's a good likelihood that any one of those has a real imprint of climate change in it. As I said, it's forming in that system. But the overall frequency and severity of those uh, is going up, and it's going up due to us. And is there a specific connection to hail there? Uh, Has that been studied? Well, what's been studied, and, and that would be more difficult, I mean, what we know, again, kind of in basic physics, just like dropping your pen off the desk for gravity to have it fall to the floor, is that when it heats up, when we put more heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere, the atmosphere also holds more water. And so the overall cycles of water through the air and back out are going to get more intense on average. So the likelihood of extreme precipitation events, whether that's snow, whether that's hail, whether that's rain, also uh, is likely to go up. Eve, the hailstorm in Metro Denver walloped the Colorado Mills Mall, which will be closed until November. 
putting a lot of people out of work and potentially costing the city of Lakewood millions in lost tax revenue, it made me wonder to what extent you try to connect your work on climate with the economy, you know, because often we feel something more intensely when it hits our pocketbooks. Right. We see that a lot in a variety of sectors. And one of the places where we see it to a really great degree is with agriculture. So farmers are feeling the effects of climate change really profoundly from dealing with the droughts or heat waves or water scarcity and uncertainty. And right here in Colorado on the Western Slope with um, extreme events like rapid drops in temperature that cause freezing and frost. And that can have profound effects on our economy and on people that rely on those jobs and on the rest of us who rely on the food and fiber produced here. So as scientists, we have a role to play to bring information to creating more sustainable practices and in providing solutions that are better for the environment and for our health, and also to bring data to that decision-making. Yeah, and when the question comes up of what uh, energy sources should be, you know, renewables versus, say, fossil fuels, Alan, the question is often, will it raise rates? Will people pay more if there's more solar or more wind and it occurs to me that, you know, to some extent, you've, you've got to balance the economics of that with the economics that you see with a, a storm like the one that hit the Colorado Mills Mall. Well, that's right. You know, we don't tend to, in, in any analysis, look at the full cost uh, of these kind of energy systems, including what those social and economic costs are in terms of their larger effects. And, you know, what I think is really flipping the switch, and sorry for the bad pun on that, but for this now, <laughs> is that we can, even get, we can even get beyond that. You know, we're seeing just incredible shifts in the renewable energy sector just in the last few years, in the last decade, right, where the price of solar is plummeting, the price of wind is plummeting, the adoption of that is going way up. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is good here is that we're seeing rapid progress in this country and beyond of those early shifts where maybe we don't have to even engage in that debate as much as possible. We're obviously a long ways from being where we need to go, but but it is happening and it's happening in, in many, many ways, including right here in Colorado. And it's really going to take kind of a mix of energy sources to meet our demand and to do this in a responsible way. And that's something that both Alan and I think about a lot. It's not going to be just one solution or 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 just solar. We have to look at the whole mix and consider that. And that's really an active area of debate right now. I want to go back to a bit to agriculture, which you've raised with us, Eve, because in another climate story, Colorado's wine industry had about $33 million in sales last year. They expect to have a $50 million impact on the state's economy this year. So it's growing. But because of issues like warmer temperatures, problems have begun to bubble up. Snowpacks that melt too quickly, for example, can send runoffs downstream before plants need them. Uh, I wonder if we might focus for a bit on on grape farmers and wineries. So that's something that we look at in, in California and in Colorado in terms of how wine growers are responding to these constraints of climate change. And in Colorado in particular, we're dealing with a situation where farmers are growing in a very short growing season. They're dealing with... Um, rapid changes in temperature, 
it's a really difficult environment to grow grapes. This is not a Mediterranean climate system. Right. So already at the baseline, it's hard for these growers. But then you put on top of that the issues that you mentioned with flooding of soils, with, with rapid onset of snowmelt, but then also the rapid decreases in temperature that can occur very quickly cause real problems uh, for vines. They cause freezing and vine trunks, and then growers have less of a crop to harvest, and the quality of those grapes is, is lower. And so what that means is that then winemakers have to be the ones in the, in the wineries really monkeying around with the flavors of those wines. Um, and so the, the wine is not made in the vineyard which, vineyard, which is what most people want and value. And so the hardships there are really great, and it will really affect the, the price of the wine, the price point for this high-value crop. I also want to mention that growers are also dealing with an aphid-like insect called phylloxera. Phylloxera sucks sap from the roots of certain grapevine species while injecting a toxin, eventually killing the vine. And it's been reported that the aphid's introduction is connected to climate change. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, regularly on the program, we run through news about climate change with Colorado climate change thinkers. And this time around, it's Alan Townsend, ecologist at CU, and uh, Eve Hinckley, who is an assistant professor of environmental studies at CU Boulder. Now, it is summer, but I think we could uh, bring the ski industry into this discussion as well, again, because of earlier springs. Uh, Alan Townsend, what, what kinds of adaptations do you think will become necessary for that industry? Well, I think that industry is already well down the path of thinking about it. Several of the ski industries and companies in Colorado have been out front about raising concern. You know, a lot of the big ones have already become four season operations, but they may be forced even further down that path. And well, let me just stop you there. When you when you say four season operations, in other words, when you go to you know Crested Butte, it's not just to ski, but it might be to zip line in uh, in warmer weather. So one adaptation might be we're much more than a ski resort for a good chunk of the year. I guess that's correct. You know, we love that. I mean, Colorado is wonderful in the mountains four seasons a year. But there's also a fundamental truth in this for them is that the main draw remains skiing. It's it's part of the identity of our state and what we expect and are seeing signs of already in a changing climate is that, yeah, the, the springs are shorter, so the spring ski season can be shorter. Overall, uh, we may see drier conditions, so just less snow overall. And, and that's, you know, that is a tough thing to adapt to. And then even if you're, if as a, um, a ski resort, you're forced to, for example, make more snow to make up for that, warmer temperatures can get in your way there too, where your overall season goes down. I think one of the things that gets sometimes a little lost is that it's hard to identify a business in Colorado or elsewhere or a sector that won't be touched by climate change in one way or the other. And so if your your business involves travel, it involves having to provide energy for what you do. Um, increasingly, so many businesses go beyond their local area and are globally connected in some way. It's all of those are likely to feel the effects. And so in many ways, we're all in this together. And, and we don't want to just isolate one industry or another, but realize that this is something where we all need to kind of come together and figure out better solutions. Well, I'm glad you mentioned industry because um, according to the EPA, 21% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. come from industry. Uh, another group, the White House Mid-Century Strategy for Decarbonization, puts the number even higher at 46%. 
And um, it seems that there is a shift. If you look at the U.S. withdrawal, for instance, from the Paris Climate Agreement and the general uh, view of government from the current administration, it seems that government will play less of a role than it has in the past in climate change and that more of that may get transferred indeed to industry, to the private sector. I'd like to ask each of you how you think your work in academia, in science, might connect in the future more closely with industry if government plays a smaller role. Eve, what do you think? Well, as academics, as scientists, many of us are relying on government funding for our research. And now we're having to get more creative and really work at the ground levels to create collaborations and find funding to continue to do the work that we know is important. I feel like there are are a few ways that we're starting to think about it differently. There are other um, private agencies and industries that have had that have supported research in the past, but with the understanding that government agencies might not be supporting climate change related research to the same degree, they are focusing their programs more around those and looking to support those scientists. So we're trying to seek out partnerships there. Alan, does that um, rapprochement between science and business uh, excite you or or leave you daunted or what? Uh, no, very much the former. And I agree with Eve and, and would say that, you know, one of the words she used in there in partnerships is, is, is really central to this. And, and I think the responsibility falls on both sides. And so I might say a couple things. I mean, as first to get back to your original question, we are seeing considerable leadership um, in many parts of the private sector, and that's essential. Um, and some of that is through funding of work. Some of that is just through funding themselves and making decisions themselves to influence policy or behavior to help slow it. You know, some of the tech giants are really making commitments to um, pushing 100% renewable energy. So very positive signs there. On the partnership thing, this is a two-way street where I think academics in particular or scientists in general have a great deal to offer in terms of solutions. Um, It's somewhat on us as well to be thinking really carefully and openly about how we make our own decisions and choices and what we study to be most useful as we go these problems, to engage in those partnerships with really open minds, to listen to what stakeholders need. And one of the things that I really like that I feel like I'm seeing more and more of in the last decade within my broad scientific community is more and more people doing exactly that, approaching their problems where they just want to be part of the team, not isolated doing their work and then going out and telling people what to do with it. But they're part of a bigger team that extends well beyond, say, a university or government lab. Mm, So it's a question both of business reaching out, but of the scientific community community reaching out as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's possible to listen to conversations like this and feel rather daunted by climate change. And so uh, we like to wrap up with something that is giving each of you hope, maybe something you've seen in the news, some new area of research, some new development. What is uh, giving you succor, uh, Eve? Yeah, as a professor, as an educator, I'm really inspired by the students that I work with. I see hundreds of undergraduates at the University of Colorado every year going into environmental studies. They really want to be positive. They want to work for change. They want to get the skills they need to address these complex problems like climate change. And they bring a lot of energy to that. So I'm really hopeful for this next generation coming through 
that will be able to create a better future because they're doing it for themselves as well. I'm curious, uh, are, and I, you probably haven't taken a specific census, but are all of those going into climate science necessarily embracing that people are contributing to it? That is to say, are there people going into climate scientists who may not be those that, that embrace the idea of anthropogenic climate change? I would say that what I see a lot of is that they're willing to look at the multiple factors that, that are affecting climate change. And humans are one part of that. They're one really big part of that. And what we try to teach as faculty is that you do have to look at those multiple dimensions. You do have to understand the underlying physics of the climate Earth system. Um, but then we do have to bring in humans because we can't get away from the fact that that is a big part of why the climate is changing. Mm. Alan, what is uh, allowing you to sleep at night? <laughs> well, you know, I think the thing I would say, and this might sound paradoxical at the beginning, but, you know, I firmly believe we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation. And I see that as a good thing because I think history teaches us that really making significant change as society, which happens now and then, it has to happen now and then, happens when communities really come together and they come together from a lot of different angles and they work together and they address common problems and that that often can bring out the very best in us. You know, we've been sitting through a long period where there's all this debate of do we even have a challenge? But what gives me hope is that there's a pretty big difference between a lot of what we may hear day to day, whether it's coming out of the current administration or some of the major news outlets, and the reality of what many people, the majority of people in this country think and do. You know, I mean, a majority of people in every single state in the country supported staying in the Paris Agreement. I see examples all the time, whether it's local to larger, of groups coming together and really wanting to deal with this problem. And again, deal with it in pragmatic, solution-driven ways. And that actually gives me a lot of hope where some of this you know, debate we've been in for so long that can be frustrating. I, I kind of think it's, it's, it's time is limited and that we'll move to the next stage before long. What do you base that assertion on, that most people in most states uh, opposed withdrawing from Paris? I know I saw some polls that were national, but... Uh... Yeah, so there were there were data collected by, by a group that's at Yale um, that looks a lot of the sort of public opinion things, and, and there was polling done that or every state that showed that literally a majority of people in every one of the 50 states supported staying in. And, and you can see examples of that across the board, you know, and on the heels of, you know, some pushback against that from the current federal government. So that gives me hope that the people will, will take this on the way we need to. Alan, Eve, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Alan Townsend is an ecologist at CU Boulder. His colleague there, Eve Hinckley, is an assistant professor of environmental studies. They joined Ryan Warner for our regular conversation about climate news. Nearly 100 miles southeast of the Mile High City is Colorado's hub city. Lyman is at the crossroads of I-70 and a handful of other major roads, making it a popular stop for gas. This weekend, the town hopes people will stay for a while and catch the first Colorado Prairie Music Festival. The headline act is the Turnpike Troubadours, an Oklahoma red dirt country band. Well, I heard you've been running with a wilder cast Playing hard 
hard and living fast And for a while you had a blast You were feeling ten feet tall You're gonna be alright You'll be fine You can have a nickel out of my last dime The moon is bright And you're alright down here Tim Anderson is on the Lincoln County Tourism Board and helped organize the event. Tim, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Briefly, where did the idea to host a music festival in Lyman come from? Oh, it was born in the back rooms of the Lincoln County Tourism Board. Uh No, uh, there was a few of us on the board that I think always had a dream to to have uh, Lincoln County as a place where people would come out and see what our life is about and... We thought a music festival was the best, and it just so happened that the uh, the idea of having a country band like a Red Dirt country band come out, and that that was the that was the dream that we had, and and it came to fruition this year. So the Turnpike Troubadours uh, headline: Braden Zink, who's from Colorado but lives in Texas, yes. will also perform. That's Zink's new song, Actress. This is actually the first time it's being played on the radio. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And this style is called Red Dirt Country. How would you describe Red Dirt Country (laughs) music? You know, we talked off the air about, um, I always compare it to Hank Williams meets Garth Brooks meets James Taylor, 80s type music. It, it, It appeals to so many people on so many levels. It appeals to the young kids. That's where I first learned about Turnpike Troubadours was through my daughter who... Heard, heard she was down in Stillwater, Oklahoma, to Oklahoma State, and that's where the birth of uh, Red Dirt music was. And um, obviously, Garth Brooks got his start there too. But uh, Red Dirt really took off there. It's a really cool sounding music, as you can as you can well hear. And it's got a broader audience oh, as time's definitely. gone on. It has. I mean, it's it's it was kind of, uh, and I hate to use the word cult following. But it had a huge cult following in the early 2000s, and then it's kind of expanded out as it's spread to college campuses across the United States. And now some of the older people find that they hear a lot of the old music in that. Uh, you hear the steel guitar and, and a lot of the old fiddle playing, and it, it really has a broad appeal. Tourism makes up about 15% of the county's economy. Uh, this festival could boost that. Who do you hope to draw to this festival? Coloradans, folks from out of state? Well, you know, it's ironic. You know, we, we want to pull in people from Colorado. But what we're seeing is not only where are we getting people from Colorado, but we're getting people from Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas. We're bringing in a, a new breed of people into Lincoln County to see what Lincoln County is about. And what we really wanted to do is to bring in people from around Colorado who've never been out on the Eastern Plains to see what Lincoln County has. We have a great, uh, great amount of things to do. And it, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's not the mountains, but it's a beautiful place. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking about the first ever Colorado Prairie Music Festival this weekend. It takes place in Lyman on the Eastern Plains. Tim Anderson is with us. He's on the Lincoln County Tourism Board. The county hopes the event will boost tourism in the area. 
So um, if you sell out this event, that could bring up to 1,800 people to Lyman Friday, which is about the size of the state, uh, of the town's population. It is. Uh, It makes me think about when the music festival Riot Fest first came to Colorado. It was hosted uh, in the eastern plains town of Byers. Mm -hmm. Residents complained about traffic, noise, and people doing drugs. Um, And Arapahoe County denied festival organizers a permit the following year. What challenges does Lyman face in hosting this festival, and how might you mitigate those? Sure, sure. Well, obviously, we're talking about a different type of music, and so we're talking about a different type of people, potentially. Um, Most of our folks are going to be pretty laid back, I would hope, nothing like Riot Fest. But the other thing that also helps us is we've got great community support, great county support. All the law enforcement agencies have been wonderful to meet with. They've been really working this out, helping us trying to figure out traffic control. And we're going to have a great presence uh, of, of not just law enforcement, but just community people helping. And you say the community supports this. How do you know that? Uh, just people have, uh, on the street. Of course, it's a small town. Oh, this is great. You know, glad that you're doing this. We wanted these, uh, this to happen. You know, music has been great. We think it's a great idea. Hope it continues to go on. Hope it makes it succeed. A success. What systems have you put in place to keep people safe if things, uh, you know, something happens or the weather intervenes? Well, if the weather intervenes, um, you know, we'll obviously watch the weather, but uh, and that can happen in eastern Colorado. But the outlook looks really good right now. We're looking at 78 degree temperatures and uh, partly cloudy skies with a very little chance of rain. So it's going to be perfect weather. The concerts will be at the Old Lyman Sail Barn. <laughs> and, and you're wondering why. <laughs> I understand there's some significance to that. There is. Why are you hosting the festival there? Well, so for lack of a, I mean, we, we wanted another site, but it just so happened this fell into our lap. Um, the Old Lyman Sail Barn, obviously it's been there a long time, and it's it's something else now, but it, uh, it just ended up being a great venue because Stillwater, Oklahoma, home of the Red Dirt Country, has the bar called the Tumbleweed, and mm-hmm. it's in an old sail barn. And mm-hmm. so, perfect. We thought, this is this is meant to be. It's fate. So, And Garth Brooks actually got his start. He did, in the Tumbleweed. Yeah, Garth Brooks, actually, that's where he started out. And um, Garth, you know, as you hear it in the background. Yeah, let's hear him play uh, the Thunder, Thunder Rolls. Asking for a miracle, hoping she's not right. Praying it's the weather that's kept him out all night And the thunder rolls And the thunder rolls The thunder rolls What kind of message do you want to send with this festival? Is it about changing the image of Lyman? That it's more of a small town on the eastern plains, more than a small town to stop and get gas. Exactly. And you just hit it. I, I think when people go through Lyman, you, when you ask people who have gone through Lyman, do they even have a downtown? A lot of people don't even realize that. Or do they, they don't even realize there's Hugo, Colorado or anything in, in Lincoln County. We want people to take time and come off the highway and be able to see what's downtown, what we have to offer. We have museums. We have small town. If you want small town Americana, come out to the festival and you'll get it. Great people. It'll be great music and a great time. What about next year? Do you hope to bring it back? That's that's what we're trying. We're gonna we're hoping for it to be an because this is the first annual, as you notice, first annual. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Thank you.
Tim Anderson is on the Lincoln County Tourism Board. The first ever Colorado Prairie Music Festival is this weekend. He hopes it'll become an annual event. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. Well, I'm on a pick up some of these empties, Lord. As soon as I find where they lay, tied off them jolly and leaving mines on a long, hot summer day. And for every day I'm working on the Illinois River, get a half a day off with pay. Oh, Tobo picking up barges on a long, hot summer day. Short-term rentals, like those on Airbnb, are great for travelers who want a homey place to stay. But when apartments and houses become more like hotels, neighbors can get cranky. Denver tried to balance all this with new regulations that went into effect about six months ago. CPR's Nathaniel Miner explains what's happened so far. Christy Miller used to travel a lot for business. As an IT consultant, she jet around the U.S. and Europe for months at a time. After a few years of that... I got really sick of being in hotel rooms. So she found creative ways to skip sleek but sterile corporate hotels. One trip to Northern California about eight years ago stands out. I was there every week, Monday through Thursday. It was quite a slog. A friend had a trailer in the backyard with a small apartment. No bathroom or a shower. But it did have something else. Another sort of bonus to the apartment, in quotes, was this giant tortoise that lived under the trailer and ate bok choy. Was the bok choy just like growing naturally? (laughs) or What's the story here? You know, I really don't know why he ate bok choy, but we did live right across the street from an Asian grocery store, so maybe it was just easy food for him. Those memories of bland hotels and tortoises stuck with Miller. I knew that there was extreme value in providing individuals in short-term situations with a comfortable place that's cool, feels like home, or maybe even better than home, um, in a great neighborhood. About two years ago, Miller got into the short-term rental game herself. She started renting out an investment property on Airbnb. It's an old Victorian home just south of downtown Denver. And she made money. Uh, During the summer, I could make up to $3,500, $4,000 a month. But that's changed. And now it's it's, uh, about half of that. Last summer, the Denver City Council passed new regulations on short-term rentals like Airbnb. City leaders were worried that homes, like Miller's, were being rented to travelers, not residents. So they banned investment properties from being rented for fewer than 30 days. Only a landlord's primary residence can legally be a short-term rental now. So Miller's apartments are still on Airbnb, but they're only available for 30 days or more. I changed my model to to try this out and see if it would work. And if I have to change again, I will. Many other short-term rental landlords have changed their tactics or gotten out of the game. City data shows that the total number of short-term rentals dropped by about 1,000 after Denver started enforcement earlier this year. And there's a few reasons for that, according to Nathan Batchelder. He's a staffer in the city of Denver's excise and licenses department. There were certainly those folks who uh, may have had an Airbnb listing last summer and left it up and didn't realize that it was still up. Or um, people who may have been just discouraged by the fact of having to get licensed and uh, having to follow regulations. Batchelder says more than half of all listings are licensed. Uh, We still have a ways to go, but 
I don't think many of us here expected that uh, we would have this many licenses uh, by this time this year. Things were pretty contentious a year ago when the city council was about to pass the regulations. This public testimony is from the night of the final vote. The only thing you're doing is giving the selfish, self-minded people... Batchelder thinks things have calmed down. The city has focused on educating hosts on the new rules. It sent out nearly 1,500 warning letters to hosts who've broken the law, but it's only issued 18 citations so far. So I think the conversation and the narrative since those days has more or less changed. People understand that everyone's a Denver resident, everyone's a Denver neighbor, um, and everyone wants this to work. Neighborhood advocates are pretty happy, too. The real test, they say, will come when the city decides to get more aggressive with enforcement. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. That's our show for today. Thanks to Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, and Stephanie Wolf. Ryan Warner is our executive editor, and our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.